Welcome to season three of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, mum, behavior scientist, and burnout survivor. I interview DEI leadership and mental health experts to uncover burnout solutions at the individual, family, work, and cultural levels. When mums thrive, the world benefits. Please take a moment to check out my website at www.drjacquelinecurr.com. Click on the free guides button and find solutions for burnout that support individual team and organizational change. If you're worried about regrettable turnover, but already have too much on your plate, I can provide a comprehensive roadmap to help you improve wellness, belonging, and engagement through an overarching burnout prevention strategy. So you can have thriving, diverse leadership teams. This week's guest, Jennifer Moss, is the author of The Burnout Epidemic. Her book focuses on the role organizations play in burnout. Written during the pandemic, Jennifer presents case studies of how vulnerable and flexible leadership allowed companies to better adapt. Leaders have to role model healthy work habits, but also if we recognize how much we have learned about resilience during the pandemic, we can have the confidence to make workplaces of the future more sustainable. I hope you learn as much from this conversation as I did. So I'm Jennifer Moss and a mom of three kids, a teenager now and a 12-year-old and an eight-year-old, which is all wonderful, three girls, and married to my spouse, Jim, who is also in this space, really. Both of us have been focusing on workplace wellness for over a decade now, really seriously into the research. And I veered off and started focusing really on the chronic stress and burnout piece of well-being. And that's been my real deep focus on research over the last four years now. Great. Thank you so much for that introduction. And I have been interested to see that your husband was also involved in this work. So that'll be an interesting story a little bit to learn more about. Please describe your journey to where you are now in your career. Well, what's so interesting, I think, about our journey is it's been like most people's, I guess it hasn't followed some sort of perfect trajectory. It's been all over the place. But I studied journalism in school and and then went on to working in communications within an HR services firm, but a large Fortune 1000. And in that time, I really learned how research, research that's applied makes such an impact when we start to look at making change, making differences. And organizations weren't doing that very well. They didn't have very strong academic partnerships, but this organization I worked with were great about that. And it gave me a love of of academic research and data and insights. And my husband and I actually were living in California when he was playing pro lacrosse and ended up actually contracting swine flu, H1N1, and then post-viral illness, Guillain-Barre syndrome, which was a quite dramatic moment in our lives. But, and he became acutely paralyzed. And so everything just flipped like anything that's traumatic, it changes you. And we decided at that point, what life was going to look like for us, he is not going to be an athlete anymore. But what was so interesting is that in his time in the hospital, 
people were saying he wasn't going to walk again. He wasn't going to be able to basically be the same person again. And he had, as an athlete, had so much psychological fitness training, so much development and social emotional intelligence as an identified high performer that he bucked at diagnoses very quickly and walked out of the hospital after six weeks. There was more that we needed to learn about that. What was it about his psychological fitness, but also the fact that he was a healthy young man, but what did that mean? And that kickstarted our focus on understanding what psychological fitness, how that plays into culture. How do you have human-centered leadership rooted in empathy? And how do we develop high-performing people based on positive psychology versus that transactional relationship that was pre-existing? And then fast forward to now, and it's still our life's work, and we're very passionate about it. That's wonderful. It is interesting how these journeys evolve. And I love that you're also a fan of academic partnerships, having been in academia myself. But let's talk a little bit about then any changes that came for you with motherhood. Did that change your career approach to life? Or was it easier because somehow you and your husband were already partners in this journey and had had more serious thoughts than maybe most couples about what you want life to look like? I feel like sometimes we just don't have these conversations till maybe not that it's too late, but we don't think of them beforehand. That's such an important part of my journey has been motherhood. I think before motherhood, I would have had a much more myopic view around this situation. It would have been more, I think, self-centered, or I wouldn't have necessarily thought about the greater implications on everyone around me. Because when you're in your early 20s, you're not necessarily thinking the future forward in the way that you do at, at 45, but really expanded my thinking beyond myself. I think it It also made me realize that when you go through something like this, something as consequential as Jim, but potentially not living through the night, we were really scared for a few days about what this looked like for him from just an illness standpoint, and then what it would look like for him as an individual who is so connected as an identity to his sport. And all of those things just became, what do we want to do with our lives? How do we want to make it meaningful? What really matters? And we actually moved from the US to Canada at that point, because we also recognize that having our family together with our extended family, my mom and my dad and my siblings, that really drove us back to being in our circle before having kids, it was just sort of me and my husband and we were on an adventure. And then you have kids and you realize, okay, what is so consequential to their lives? And that's having a village. And that brought us home as well. So I think all those things made me care more about my work and made me committed to finding something that I cared about doing so that I could pass on to them that work can be fuel, work can make you happy, work can make you a sense of accomplishment. It doesn't need to be a drudgery. It doesn't need to be something that we just live for the weekends and just check in and check out. And I think that's been a big part of my career is making sure that my kids follow in their passions as well. And have you experienced burnout in your career or how do you keep yourself from burning out during your current hectic book promotion schedule? How is that? What is your personal experience with it? I have gone through the symptoms of burnout and then I actually did hit the wall and burned out. And so, cause we talk about burnout, but 
really we feel a lot of us will feel symptoms of burnout, but to actually hit the wall as Dr. Marie Asberg discusses, and she's based out of Stockholm. Um, and she is a, is a professor at Stockholm University, but what she talks about is that it's this extreme exhaustion disorder. And when we hit the wall, there's like a real drop and then we have to recover and that can take a while. And that's what I think we're seeing right now in the great resignation. People are at that point. But for me, I actually did have a moment where I hit that wall. And that was after working as a co-founder of a technology startup And it was focused on workplace well-being and data gathering insights to a lot of research partnership and then worked with large organizations to analyze and do case studies. And so it was real passion-driven work, but that passion became obsessive for me and I could not stop working. I had a hard time deciding what my priority was. I had to be in everywhere, in everything. I had to be everywhere at all times. And I also felt a huge responsibility as being a female in this technology co-founder role because there's so few of us. I had to be on every board and to talk about women in tech. And I just completely lost my sense of prioritization. It's different than burnout within an organization where that work is being forced on me. As an entrepreneur, we deal with burnout in a different way because we have more choice, but we just don't see the signs. We miss the signs. And so that's what happened. And it was a, it was about four months. I had to leave the, the work entirely, which was so devastating. And we've shut the startup down. I had to get therapeutic help. I had to really reset my priority structure. And it was probably like not until maybe about two years ago now where I felt like I had fully recovered. And I'm so aware of it now. But that did lead me to... I think, talk about it more, understand where the real problems are in preventing burnout, and then also reminding us as individuals when our passion becomes obsessive and how dangerous that can be. Yes, and I can so relate to that story. That was similar to me in terms of just absolutely loving my job and my work in public health and thinking it was so important and that I had to just keep giving. And you do lose sight. In some ways in academia, it is like you're running your own business because you're running your own research group. So there's many similarities. There's a certain amount of autonomy, but yes, very obsessed. (laughs) Yes, it is obsessive because you really enjoy the work. I love the work. And I have to put boundaries on myself constantly or else it becomes paralyzing because you realize, wow, I've stepped way too far in one direction and it's hard to pull yourself back out of it. As I mentioned, you you have been really busy recently promoting your book. So again, what is your recipe for, for helping yourself, knowing those symptoms and helping yourself during this time? And you mentioned you moved house as well. So it's another that's in the annual stress, (laughs) worst stresses that can happen in a year. So what do you do now? It's so true. Why do we make these choices? But the truth is I learned a lot from that episode in my life and I became very humble. I think again, just age and not necessarily increasing wisdom, but this definitely did help me think more clearly about what my needs were. And before I would do things entirely on my own and I had a hard time giving up the work and just ensuring that 
now I have a good team of people around me that do the things that I'm not good at. And that's a privilege for sure to be in a place of having a support team and be able to hire a support team. But I do that. I'm a creative person and I'm very detailed about specific things, but when it comes to administrative work and just running a business, that's not what I'm good at. And so it's really propping myself up with people around that, that have those skill sets and finding that I have to let go of certain things has been really helpful. And I have a good priority scheme in my life where I know the things that are fundamental and the number one things, which I let atrophy, I think when I was burning out before, or what led to my burnout was not prioritizing just the things that will be the most important as I sit on my deathbed. And I I talk about deathbed regrets, which sounds really morbid, but when it comes to me thinking about, okay, if I don't answer this email, or if I say no to this thing, is it going to be a deathbed regret? Or is it me not being able to, is it going to impact me being able to have dinner with my family or be part of my kid's school event? Or will it make it so that I'm not home all the time? Those types of things help me decide if I want to say yes to something. And, and really saying, does this fit in the vertical of things that I'm great at? And if it doesn't, and I just want to say yes to it, then I say no. And again, it's morbid, it may be to say that my deathbed regrets, but I just think of life satisfaction being just as equal as job satisfaction and making sure those two things are treated equal. That's a great filter to run it through, because I think we do need to get perspective on the decisions we make. And certainly that was one of the things with me. I was saying yes to everything, which was not a choice. I wasn't actually making a choice and I wasn't owning then these decisions I was making because the answer was always Yes. And I remember it was very helpful for me when my therapist basically said to me, because I was in this such a state of fight and flight. And she literally said to me, can you keep asking yourself, are you in danger in this moment? Are you in danger in this moment? And I had to keep saying that because I was just having these, this feeling of panic and that everything was so important and the world would end if I didn't do it. But she, by reminded me of that, are you actually in danger in this moment? That was my filter to then go, no, okay, this isn't a dangerous situation. This isn't a life-threatening situation. Stop and make a choice. So I really like your deathbed regrets because I think we need these filters, like something to remind us, what is reality? I love your filter too, because I have that constant sense of urgency. And I talk now a lot about how we create false urgencies that a client needs something right away. Define right away. When are they going to present the data that you're giving them? Or when are they actually going to do anything with what you're providing them? Right away is so subjective or, or right now, whatever that is around time, it's very subjective. And so learning how to get expectations managed is one of the things that I've really had to develop and asking the right questions so that I can identify what people's urgent needs are. So I don't just react all the time. 
And that's been a skill that I've had to develop because my natural reaction is to just jump. So let's transition now to your latest book and feel free to describe any parts of it that you want to for listeners. But my question is really about, and it was such a fantastic book and I can see so many people on social media. Just even yesterday, I saw a post of somebody saying, I'm 22 pages in and look how many stickies I have already. So I know people, it's like a Bible for burnout for sure. What messages from your book are having the biggest impact? I think the most provocative one started with a article that I wrote a few years ago for Harvard Business Review, and it was burnout. It's about your company, not your people. And I think a lot of folks that have resonated put their hand up to say, oh my goodness, thank you for not making me feel like I'm to blame for my burnout because I'm doing all those things that they're telling that they're providing for me, like in doing more yoga. I know that they have this really great app that helps me to meditate and take pauses. And I have unlimited vacation and all of these great things that people feel like, oh, if I do these things, because this is what the wellness strategy is in my organizations, then I'll feel better. And then they don't feel better. And then they feel ashamed of that. And so I think that what is so important for people to understand and organizations and firms and leaders to understand is that it isn't about self-care alone. We can't solve burnout with self-care alone. Modeling healthy self-care behaviors is really important and we should be all doing that and managers especially. But when it comes to solving for burnout, it's looking at the root causes of burnout, understanding that they're policy driven, that they're systemic, it's societal, and a global pandemic is also going to play into that. So how do we solve for the things that we can within our control inside of our organization so that actually deal with the much further upstream causes of burnout versus just trying to tactically band-aid them way further downstream. And I think that's so important coming from the public health perspective that I do. My work was always multi interventions because we know that we can motivate individuals, but their relationships impact how they can perform, their environment impacts how they can perform. And the research around burnout shows the same studies that focus on something like meditation apps plus organizational change are more impactful. So we know it from the science side as well as I say, not just even from an organizational psychology side, but from a public health side as well, we understand that our behaviors are always in the context of the policies and systems around us. So it's definitely made sense to me. But I really appreciated in your book that you included stories of companies trying to do the right thing during COVID. Because I think, again, our mental health became so much more central to companies, and they'd be trying to do their best to do something about it. But really, we weren't admitting that we were pretty clueless about this, because we haven't done it before. It hasn't been a pandemic before, and we haven't necessarily tried these things. I appreciated that you included companies really trying to evaluate what they were doing and adapting. Yeah, yeah, I had so much fun interviewing people and learning about their experiences, both from an employee side and an employer side. When you run into human-centered leaders, compassionate leaders, they aren't married to their solutions or their strategies. We saw a lot of folks try to like have the happy hour cocktail on 
Friday afternoons and people are so burned out that the last thing that they really want to do is now have a happy hour cocktail meeting over Zoom on Fridays. And we had the big group yoga classes where everyone's together and you had people saying bending over in front of my boss and sweating on Zoom did not make me feel very good about myself. So there was a really great intention there, I think, by leaders to try to figure out how do we team build? How do we stay connected? But when organizations were doing it right, they would ask and say, how do you feel about this? And if folks really loved it, then they keep doing it. And if they didn't, then they'd abandon it quickly. And so anyone that demonstrated agile leadership, I found was very effective inside of the pandemic. I think, too, when I saw, for example, one case study that I provided where there there was a CEO that was giving Fridays off because he was noticing people were checking in a lot and working really hard on Friday or throughout the week. And so it was like, let's give Fridays off. And when he started to look at the data just to make sure it was working, he noticed all of his employees are still now then working on Saturdays and Sundays to fill in the gap of having this Friday off. And so what he did was the CEO, Tom McKinnon, what he said is, I'm going to now change workload entirely. Instead of looking at it as Fridays off, I need to look at it as like amount of workload so that you can do what you need to do within four days and within the hours of those four days so that you aren't having to just whatever, work on Saturdays to deal with those Fridays off because it doesn't make any sense. And so this is, again, a micro example, but these are the ways that we analyze, we listen, we iterate, we're agile, we take the learning and then we change. And that is how I think we should still behave in the future of work is being much more active listeners and responding with actions quicker and more frequently. That totally makes sense because even as we shift out of COVID into the next phase, what one needed at one point in time can change. It can change for employee groups as projects change or as their life circumstance changes. I think continuous evaluation, for me, it's all part of any quality improvement cycles. And so it does surprise me that companies are, and we've heard this, is that they are afraid to measure these things. What do you think can help companies shift that mindset? I think that you're totally right. And the thing with measuring, and I did the interview with Christina Maslach inside of the book and for other articles that I've written, and she really has dealt with this for many years. And she spent decades trying to gather enough data to then provide it back to employers who and leaders who you know, who didn't do much with it. And the frustration for employees then is why should I bother answering these questions if no one's going to action it? And so a big problem is a lot of leaders feel like they're biting off too much, that they don't know how to action the data. They don't know what interventions to use to fix things. They feel like it has to be really programmatic and they need to design some sort of silver bullet solution that's going to deal with all of the things that they learn. Also, they might not want to hear the things that they learn about themselves, which we've found a few times is that in many situations where leaders have a total different 
understanding or perception of how they think their employees are doing versus how their employees are actually doing. So all of that plays in. And so I've really tried to make it about micro targeted micro shifts and having direct managers play a larger role in gathering the data. In the book, I interviewed Dr. Martha Bird, who is the chief anthropologist for ADP. And what she says is direct managers should really be professional eavesdroppers, that they need to just be listening for the small data. And if you have those non-work-related check-ins every week, if you're looking for specifically around mental health, potential lack of mental health and well-being, that you can be listening for the language that shares that someone might be feeling exhausted or stressed, or if you're noticing that someone's withdrawing or irritable, you can start to provide them and drip them information that is available within the organization to help support them. And I think that's what we need to start with. These measures that I strongly believe in measure and measure at an organizational level and pulse surveys, they're really important. Data is really important, but also empower managers, those direct leaders to be able to be much more nuanced in the way that they're gathering data and not look at it as gathering data, but just active listening and developing that skill of active listening so that you can respond in a nuanced way to each individual who is dealing with whatever they're dealing with. And I think that is so important when we do surveys and it's that quantitative data, it gives you one view. But if you actually want to know what's not working and what is working, then you need the qualitative, you need the interviews. So again, it doesn't even have to be that formal a process like you're saying, but you need to hear from the people who are being impacted. And sometimes they have the solutions and they do have the ideas and sometimes they don't. And so that's where managers do need to have things in their toolkit that they can start to provide and then see, okay, where's the best fit? But I totally agree. There is not a silver bullet for this. And there never is in any of these big complex issues. And it's really finding out what works for whom and what can you provide when you know that, when you know those groups and what they need. That's exactly true. And what I think has been such an interesting learning for a lot of CEOs, for example, senior executives, that when I talk to them about the one tactic that they found was surprisingly, maybe even the most beneficial, they would have these conversations with their global workforce. And you hear sometimes in some workplaces where there's a complaint that there's no access to the senior level folks inside the organization, or they don't really know what the CEO is thinking or wants to do. And that was a real big issue in the pandemic because uncertainty was so high around everything that people really did need to know whatever it was, even if it was, I don't know, they needed to know. And so these, a few organizations, Hewlett Packard example, Cisco is another where they had, and that's a large workforce that they're communicating with. And I think if Cisco and Hewlett Packard can do this, then pretty much any organization can. But the CEO would basically put it out there that they were going to answer questions in this ask me anything AMA style meeting and they would do this frequently throughout the week and people could send in questions or they could ask questions on the zoom call it was like an all hands gm 
kind of conversation. And so everyone had access to asking questions and they would spend 15 minutes just updating on what they knew. And then they'd spend an hour just letting employees ask questions of them. And the questions that were most popular were upvoted. If you have across 60,000 employees, you have 10,000 people that upvote a question. There's a lot of people that are feeling that same feeling, that same uncertainty. So they took data in this very unique way and they were able to just assuage people's stressors, even by saying, I don't know, I'll find out or I'll connect you to whoever could answer that or we're still waiting and seeing on that. We don't have information on that. All of that sort of, I think, openness and transparency and communication was why they had really high employee trust when they were doing their trust scoring. And they did that through the pandemic because they just wanted to feel like as long as there's trust, then we'll be able to figure out how to get through this together. And I think that is so important to admit we don't always have the answers. And but it doesn't mean that we're not going to find the answers, even if that's together. I have confidence that together we will be able to find the answers to this. To me, that's also partly what I try to do with my kids in parenting is if I don't, you know, being honest, yeah, I don't have the answer to that right now, but let's find out together. So I I think that admitting what we don't know is a helpful part of this. It's so true that humility and vulnerability that leaders had to learn to develop and also to admit that they don't know because they didn't, they had no frame of reference and to maybe admit they were wrong was such a good, I think it was such a good skill build, emotional intelligence skill building experiment that we went through in the last two years, which is as maybe an optimist, I think it's going to play out as a benefit to the future of work. Great, great. So you focused on burnout overall in your book in particular, but how do you see working mums experiencing it differently? And was it intentional to keep it more universal? Do you think that's helping working mums when we keep it a more universal problem? So what's your perspective on specifically working mum burnout? It's really interesting because so I wrote the book, started writing the book pre-pandemic, scrapped a lot of the words because it just became like... I can't talk about this as a constructive counsel in the middle of a global pandemic when I'm talking about more flexibility. And here we are, 300 million people on one day decided, okay, now we're all going to be working from home and figure that out. So I had to adjust a lot of the tone and layer it with the pandemic. And after the book was locked, I had come to really understand the data around women in particular inside of this pandemic, women are more at risk of burnout just in general. You see this, especially female physicians. I mean, it's just extremely catastrophic for their burnout. And I did include Dr. Lorna Breen's story in there because she is an example of the entire issue with women in healthcare, especially female physicians. Their suicide rate is 130% higher than the average when it comes to their male counterpoints who are also at risk risk of burnout and they are impacted, but the compassion and empathy fatigue that happens with women in healthcare is really challenging. But we also just saw it across the board this year. We're now at female labor force participation at 1988 levels in US and Canada. We're 30 years behind. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that unpaid labor increased from five or six hours, which was still disproportionate before, but now 15 to 20 hours is sort of the average, according to the McKinsey report. And what I thought was really distressing about that is so much of it is about 
not recognizing that productivity is not the measure of success. And we measured productivity and showed, oh, I guess we can work remote because we're just as productive, but not understanding the nuances between how much extra men would have to work to get hit those same pre-COVID goals to how much women had to work to hit those same pre-COVID goals. There was still stretch goals. It was still business as usual. There was no response to the fact that this is a global pandemic and everybody is experiencing this differently, particularly women. And women are more at risk now of long-term unemployment. We're looking at some half a million women in the U.S. maybe not returning to work. Just really big consequences of policies not really working for women, and especially when it comes to burnout prevention. So I've been focusing more of my conversations around how we can deal with that specific need how we can pull women back into the workforce and what kind of strategies will we need to be able to make sure that they stay and are able to stay with their well-being in check. If your mission is to prevent burnout in society, what are the steps that you see to doing this? For example, you've written a book, Dr. Lorna Breen's family created a foundation and are advocating for legislation at a government level. What is it that you think you can do and how can you empower others to play a part in this mission? One of the goals of the book has been to elevate the conversation and the urgency of this, of burnout as a problem and chronic stress as a problem that isn't just people wanting more of work-life balance and they're just complaining about having too much work. There's catastrophic impacts to overwork. It's the reason why 2.8 million people die each year from overwork. This is a big problem to solve. It's why the ILO is invested now and the World Health Organization has actually defined burnout in a more constructive way because there's serious consequences. And so the book is, and I start the book out just by saying, this is what we think about burnout and all these different weird sort of misdiagnoses of what it is. And it's very sort of nebulous. People don't know if it's, you know, Judd Nelson in the breakfast club is a burnout, or is it someone that's sitting at their desk, you know, piled up with books or papers around them and they're working late? Is it a soccer mom juggling too much? We don't know what it is. So my goal is, first of all, to elevate and have more people talk about burnout as a serious, highly stigmatized issue. And then it's also for every individual to start to model the behavior, particularly leaders can't keep saying, don't answer emails at 11 o'clock at night, but I'm still going to send you one. I'm just going to tell you, you don't have to answer it or work being piled on you at midnight and you expected to have it done the next morning. We have to end the legacy of overwork and healthcare and tech and finance where you just get hazed in those first 10 years of starting out your career where it's survival of the fittest. We need to be thinking about more sustainable ways of working. And as a professional that has that seniority, that has decision-making abilities, that has the power to be able to stop this from happening, we need to get you to really start modeling the behavior. And that means it starts with you. You have to be doing it too. You have to walk the talk. You have to take that time for yourself. You have to not answer emails late at night or send them. You need to actually take vacation days without answering emails or being on meetings or working. 
Like we need to do those things so that it becomes part of the culture and lives within the culture and isn't just do as I say, not as I do. Yeah, exactly. So if there was one behavior change that you would recommend first, maybe for working moms to start today, and maybe the answer you just gave is the company behavior change you'd recommend, but what is it that that folks can start today? What's really important, I think, for women like us and women all over the world is that we have a hard time giving ourselves self-compassion and grace. So we first need to be able to do that. We need to forgive ourselves for those things that don't get done because we do not have the actual capacity to do everything. We need to get better at creating a priority structure that reduces the sense of false urgency in our lives, pare down what we're committed to. That's really important for us as well. Even pare down what our kids are committed to. One of the lessons that I learned over the pandemic, and we were just jam-packed. Our schedule was full of everything pre-pandemic, and we were forced to slow down during this last couple of years. And I realized there's things that I don't need to bring back. It's not going to necessarily mean that my child is not going to grow up to be high-performing, productive member of society if they're not in every single sport or every single activity. How do we make it so that our lives are just a little bit more fundamentally geared towards spending time with each other, having downtime, doing things that I, and I put in air quotes is frivolous time. We should not look at taking 15 minutes to do nothing is frivolous. We should not look at reading a book for 15 minutes a day and having quiet time as frivolous or selfish. We need to be making sure that we carve out that time because our brains actually need that rest so that they can be more efficient, so we can be better at work, so we can be more clear, so that we meet chaos with calm because we're not so highly volatile or emotional. We're setting good examples for our kids and we're also doing better at work. And a lot of that just stems in really taking the time to give ourselves that space that and acceptance that it's okay to take care of ourselves. And, and would you have any other advice for companies and what they could start today? You mentioned the CEOs being and the leaders being role models, but I think what's maybe most important is for leadership to completely pause and stop behaving like we're in an emergency anymore because we're not. That's by definition unexpected. We need to be thinking about what does it look like now and really pausing and taking a lot of questions, not designing policies and programming in the image of ourselves, but designing it in the images of people we serve. And that means taking a lot of data and asking questions, giving space for anonymous feedback and creating a cycle of anonymous feedback and learning right away. The first thing to do is like attacking a problem is to learn what the problem is. So the first thing that em employers and leaders should be doing is just ask the questions that will lead to better um, solutions. And again, it can be small in the small data, it can be in anonymous surveying, that loop, it can also be in a larger, broader study where there's qualitative questions, there's questions that ask people to answer in their own words how they're feeling and really dig into the themes. And then we can solve it. I think that's the, the number one first thing to address. But also, it's funny because people don't recognize that some people are in this bubble where they don't think that people are really suffering. I think what our data showed us is that burnout is universal. And when 89% of the respondents said that their well-being had declined, I think we can hazard a guess that most people are dealing with some level of chronic stress. 
So just assume that and then be more empathetic to that in how we support each other. Don't think that just because you've fared well that everyone else has. What brings you hope and how do you see the future looking different? You know, I actually have a a lot of optimism and hope, which is surprising for me because I'm not a rational optimist. I like to really look at the evidence and the data and then make my decisions based on that. But this last year or two has provided us with so many psychological fitness skills that we don't even realize we've developed in many cases. We've developed the capacity to pivot quickly, which is emotional flexibility. We've become more cognitively optimistic, even though we don't maybe see that, but we have in that we see that even though things didn't go as planned, that they turn out okay, maybe okay-ish, maybe not thriving, but it's not as devastating as we thought it would in many circumstances, the changes. We have developed this gratitude, like focusing on what we have versus what we don't have. A lot of us have gotten really, I don't know, like introspective about what matters. And that's also really helpful. We've developed resiliency skills a hundred percent because just even going through how many waves of this pandemic and having to rebound and readjust, we've developed that memory now we know that we can overcome some pretty heavy challenges, which makes us more adept to be able to handle future change. So all of these things, if we just recognize them and pat ourselves on the back for developing them, and we bring them out of the subconscious, but we actually label that this is what has happened to all of us collectively, I think we'll see that in general, that's going to make it more easy to have conversations around mental health, that we're going to be able to deal with these problems in a more mature and responsible way in the future. And that's going to lead to more programming and policy and advocacy in the future that's going to change work for the better. Thanks so much for listening today. Don't forget to check out my website, www.drjacquelinecurr.com for your free guides to prevent burnout. And please remember, burnout can be related to serious health problems. If you're experiencing physical or mental health symptoms, please contact a health provider or call the appropriate helpline. This podcast does not replace medical advice. Take care. Feel the